Welcome to Tell Me More Coffee with Chris Yip, the official podcast of the Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering at the University of Toronto. In our second season, I want to focus on the journey, how people got to school, what they did during their time here, and where they've ended up after graduation. You'll meet students, professors, and alumni, and learn what places them at the heart of designing bold solutions for a better world. My guest today is Professor Dion Allman from our Department of Mechanical Industrial Engineering. Dion and her team apply tools from the worlds of operations research and machine learning to improve medical and healthcare decision-making. Their work has included some pandemic modeling. She's also deeply invested in improving our student experience, serving as Associate Dean of Cross-Disciplinary Programs, as well as a co-chair of our Engineering Positive Space Committee. Professor Allman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. It's, it's going to be wide-ranging, right? It's going to talk a little bit of research, it's going to talk about some of the some of the stuff you're doing in the cross-disciplinary space, some of the stuff you're doing in the outreach space. And I think we're, we'll probably get a little diverted along the way, so be prepared. We always start this with kind of the, the standard question. Tell us about you know how you grew up and when did you realize that engineering was for you? <laughs> I actually didn't know that I wanted to be an engineer for really quite a long time, all the way up until the moment that I was applying for universities. I mean, I always liked, you know, math and science, but I also really liked English and journalism. And, you know, for a while, I actually thought I wanted to be a high school English teacher. At my high school, there was this process wherein every junior, I think it was so 11th grade, had to meet with uh, the school guidance counselor to talk about, you know, career plans, university plans. And she was like, well, what do you like to do? And I was like, well, I like math and I like science, but I also like reading and writing and these other things. She's like, you know, she's like, I just learned about this uh, type of engineering that it sounds might be really interesting to you. It's called industrial engineering. And it's all about using math to do things more efficiently. And it involves a lot of communication and working with other people and a lot of teamwork. And you've been heavily involved in sports. I was a two, two letterman two-letter person, uh, a varsity athlete. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, actually, that actually does sound really great. I really do like being efficient and finding the fastest way to do things and with the least amount of effort because, well, my, my whole family has always been like, do things faster, you know, why are you spending so much time doing that? If you did it this way, you'd be done already. And I was like, wow, that, that just really speaks to me. And I went home and I was telling my parents over dinner, oh, mom, dad, I think I found like the exact right career for me. It's this thing called industrial engineering. Uh, and I started telling them about it, thinking they've never heard of it. And my parents just both looked at me like I was insane. And they're like, are you crazy? We're both industrial engineers. How did you not know? Like your uncle has a master's in operations research. Like, like half my family's industrial engineers, but I'd never heard this term before because nobody has a job title of quote, industrial engineer, unquote. Like my uncle with the master's, you know, he's a uh -huh. hospital CEO. Um, my dad was an executive VP in the county transit system. My mom ran our family business. I mean, nobody has the word industrial engineer as their job title, so you just don't hear it, right? So I almost changed my, my major to English right then and there. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I refuse to be the same as everyone else in my family. But, well, I stayed in industrial engineering. You're right. I mean, industrial engineering is one of these fields where people it's everywhere, and yet people don't see it as much. It's a bit of a mysterious field, but as you pointed out, it's one of these fields which is like so important. When I heard the term operations research, I'm thinking hospital 
operation. <laughs> I was thinking that, but I, I don't think that's totally what it is, right? So, so for our listeners, could you explain what operations research really is and really where is it typically used? Yeah, operations research is really just a terrible, vague <laughs> term. <laughs> it's sort of been uh, taken over in the popular lexicon by the word analytics, okay. uh, which you know has a very trendy, popular feel to it. And people sort of feel like they kind of intuitively understand what is meant by analytics, although operations research, I would say, is quite a bit broader than what you might think of when you think of analytics. But uh, OR gets its name from military operations. Mm -hmm. So operations research as a field basically began during World War II. So it's as far as uh, engineering disciplines or really fields of study, period, it's, it's really quite young. If you've ever read anything about military movements, military operations, there's a lot of logistics involved. Yeah. Lots of people, lots of things have to be moved around, have to be coordinated, getting things to remote locations and, uh, and getting them back out again. And how do you do that? And uh, operations research was born out of the need to be very efficient and economical with moving both troops and supplies like supply chain management right. um, during World War II. And so military operations eventually and really quite quickly came to be realized, wait, this is not just good for military. It's also good for just general businesses and products and moving things around. And so the word military just kind of got dropped off and then we were left with just operations. So it really is critical to all aspects of life right now. I mean, supply chain, as you talked about, global supply chains, as we've been dealing with, basically getting goods products, production, processes, people, everything, movement, and identifying where things get stalled, I guess, <laughs> to borrow a term of the yeah, bottlenecks. Bottle, bottlenecks. There <laughs> it's you go. It's what we call them. <laughs> and and how you de-bottleneck the process. I use the analogy of operations, thinking of, of surgical operations, but your research is really focused kind of in the healthcare space. Give me some context. What area are you focused in? So at the moment, my primary areas of research are in pandemic modeling and planning, really looking at a lot of different facets from simulation models to predict the trajectory of COVID to helping predict the severity um, of any one person's COVID experience at the time of PCR testing to vaccine prioritization. Um, I also do a lot of work in organ transplants um, and trying to be more efficient and provide more accurate predictions on success rates. So looking at um, bone marrow transplants, looking at kidney transplants and creating large like chains and cycles of one person donates to another who has someone who donates to another who has someone who donates to another to try to very efficiently get lots of people the kidneys that they need. And uh, we're just right now branching into uh, liver transplantation as well, uh, looking to see, you know, can we predict how long a person might survive with a particular transplanted liver before needing another transplant. And then um, I, I also do a lot of work in designing um, various types of radiation therapy treatment plans for cancer treatment, which is work that I started during my PhD. Uh, it was actually something that really attracted me to stay for my PhD, learning that I could use my mathematical skills to, uh, to actually help people as opposed to just, you know, help businesses make more money, which is kind of where I always thought I was going to end up. Um, and I thought, wow, I could, I could use my knowledge to, to help treat cancer, to help, you know, improve the quality of people's lives with respect to their health. And that really spoke to me. And so I did that for my PhD and well, I'm still doing it to this very day. So in the context of the transplants, is the focus of your research really around the lifespan of the transplant, but also the kind of the biology of it and, and sort of the, the supply, which sounds a bit weird, the supply of things like liver lobes and 
you know, whether someone's a living donor of a liver or whether you're getting it from a, a death, for instance, you're transferring that kind of thing. How do you model all of those different parameters? Because it seems that would be incredibly complex. Yeah, so it depends on the particular problem we're looking at. So like with kidney transplantation, uh, a lot of the organs that are received are from living donors, right? right? Somebody donates a kidney. And, you know, can we spark a big, you know, cycle of, uh, of donations with, with one person's donation is essentially what, what we're looking at. But interestingly, a lot of times somebody will just choose to donate a kidney, not because they have, you know, a, a loved one that needs a kidney. They just decide, I'm not doing anything with this kidney. Somebody else could make a lot better use of it. And so, <laughs> which I, I mean, I think is just, I mean, just a truly inspirational mm-hmm. thing to do. And then, wow, so now we basically just have like a free kidney. Like, what can we do with this? Like, how can we really maximize the value of this one kidney? If we give this one kidney to this person, we could give their donor's kidney to this person, their donor's kidney to this person, and and really create a lot of opportunities. And so while most of our work is focused on, okay, like, you know, the organ, the donated organ just appears. Okay, now what do we do? We are, you know, starting to look into um, analyzing how often do these uh, sorts of altruistic donations appear, and if our models are used, like, on a consistent basis over the course of a year or two years, how many more kidneys might get transplanted compared to the status quo. For liver transplants, um, so you mentioned uh, living living don- donations for livers, that is certainly possible. But apparently, it's actually quite rare, um, at least here in Canada. I was just learning from, uh, from our collaborators uh, just last week. Uh, as this is a new project, we're still sort of gathering the foundational background material. Most liver donations are actually deceased mm-hmm. donations. So basically you get the liver that you get and you've got to see who on the wait list is going to be a good fit for that liver. And that's actually really a very um, interesting situation that plays a lot into um, equity and, and fairness issues because lots of people on the liver transplant are sort of fundamentally structurally disadvantaged, uh, specifically women, uh, because one of the big factors in uh, liver donation is literally just the physical size of the organ. You know, how's it going to fit into the patient? And as it turns out, most of the organs that end up being donated are male, and most male livers are too big for, for female patients. And so that, you know, that ends up with this big, you know, problem of, you know, women end up being on this wait list for a lot longer than than men, right? And is it because every single liver that comes along is not appropriate for any of the women on the list, or maybe, you know, like a small enough liver comes along, but it's a better match for, for a male candidate. And so it gets put there, but then that does that create these structural inequities? So, so that's something that, uh, that, that I'm interested in, in examining in that problem, as we also look to see, you know, can we predict a lifespan of that uh, donated organ before, uh, before the patient might need another organ? And you asked about biology. Um, I would say I don't know a ton about biology. <laughs> I learn basically what's needed for each particular problem. And we always work very closely with clinical collaborators. Like, you know, we have to have actual transplant specialists who work with us, who tell us what's important, how do things work, what do they care about, um, and to be able to validate our, our approaches and make sure that we're not doing anything that's, you know, just totally off the wall and some weird fluke of the numbers has taken us in a bizarre direction. Let me, let me divert a little bit back to the pandemic models and ask a quick question. What do you think, as someone who models pandemic behavior and just the whole thing that's been going on now for the last two, just over two years, what should the public know and understand about models in general or pandemic models in particular? There's a famous quote by uh, George Box, a famous statistician that says, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. <laughs> and this is the kind of mantra that, uh, that, that we live by when, uh, when the rubber hits the road in these operations research, industrial engineering modeling applications is, you know, I mean, a model, you know, 
it's only a model, right? Um, you you know you try to take into account all the big ticket items, everything that that seems impactful, everything that is let's say within the control of the decision makers. In this case, you know public health officials, politicians, uh, the levers that that they can pull, and you know based on what you've seen historically, various things going on around the world, you know you try to make a, an extrapolation. And how good are these models? Well, when it comes to pandemics, it is literally 100% impossible to ever know because most models are modeling what's happening right now, right. all right? And if we do nothing, oh, look at this giant exponential you know, spike up, it's going to be bad. Public officials do something, they implement you know, some sort of mitigation measures, not necessarily a full lockdown, but just continuing to tell people to wear masks or capacity restrictions or something like that. And then you know, we don't see that big exponential spike, maybe it's smaller or maybe it's just a little hump. And well, does that mean the model was wrong? How can we know, right? Because the situation changed. Right. You know, my, like the types of models that, that I developed, um, they're called agent-based simulation models. Like I do try to, you know, model an entire population, every person individually. And then we we look at, okay, what happens if we shut down like this sector or that sector? What happens if this many people get vaccinated in these age groups, vaccines of this efficacy and this and that or whatever, and try to see what happens, even going so far as to include individuals' comorbidities based on, you know, regional prevalence and what that might mean for hospitalization rates. And uh, so, so trying to get very, very accurate. But even still, even if the public health officials that I'm working with implement the policies that I say, people don't always adhere to the policies exactly Right. as they've been you know, prescribed. And a lot of times we will look at adherence, you know, what if 50% of people do what they're asked or 75% or 90% and try to make guesses. But you know, at the end of the day, like even if the model is perfect, which it never ever is, right? right? It's, it's, it's good, right? Models, good models are good enough to make, make decisions off of, but they're not crystal ball, clair, clairvoyant, uh, you know, soothsayers with wind, like eyes into the future to see what's going to happen. <laughs> even, even if the model is perfect, like I said, even though we know it's not, people aren't going to behave exactly as expected. Like one person might go out to dinner and that might spark a huge outbreak, just a totally unfortunate random happening of chance. And you know, you can't predict, you know, all of these uh, possible outcomes. And even in my models where, you know, I'll run like 500, a thousand simulations to really see what's happening at the tails of the distribution, like the really unlikely events, like those like nuclear super spreader events. Oh, that's only happening like, 2% of the time with this policy versus 20% of the time with that policy, even if you go with the, with the safer, more conservative policy, you still might end up, you know, with just essentially just really bad flips of the coin that end up with something bad happening. And it doesn't mean that the models are bad or wrong. It just means that we can't predict the future. We can just say, well, looking at what's likely to happen, here's what we should probably do and how we should probably try to respond. Fundamentally, that's a really important point, right? Is that you know, models at some level, they're as good as the data you put into them. They're as good as the sort of the, the parameters you adjust and tune by. And I'm not sure even in your models now, I mean, do you, are you able to account for what we've seen with, you know, Delta and, and Omicron and all these different variants? How does that affect your models? So, well, my models do, but uh, 
you know, one limitation is, uh, at least at the moment, um, is that they only consider, you know, one strain circulating at a time. Uh, and that's something that, you know, I was meant to expand out, but, you know, ultimately, you know, Omicron came, washed over everyone, like, so quickly, it sort of became a bit irrelevant. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like, I mean, in my models, and in fact, really most, you know, disease models, you can tune the virulence, how contagious something is, how long are people contagious when they're contagious, how many people are asymptomatic, because if you don't even know you're sick, you right. don't know that you should stay home. And so you just go out and just spread, you know, your, your germs everywhere. The bigger challenge is not so much the different strains, but knowing what's the ground truth, right. like what's actually happening right now. How many people have actually been infected with Omicron, let's say in the past, like four months, and uh, therefore are ostensibly immune from catching it again in the next couple months? <laughs> <laughs> Reinfections are real, they happen, right? But there is, you know, a window of a grace period where it's very unlikely, not impossible, just unlikely. But we don't even know, right? We don't know how many people are actually infected because testing has been so dramatically reduced, not just here in Ontario, but across the board. Of course, here in Ontario, there are a lot of like difficult hoops and rules that have to be followed to uh, to get tested in the first place, which, you know, puts people off getting tested. And thankfully, now we have wastewater data uh, that we can look at to try to get a handle of what's really going on. But it is difficult to match wastewater data to an actual number in the population. Like, how many people is that? Like, 100,000? Like, I mean, you've seen the ranges from the Ontario Science Table. Like, at the peaks of the wastewater, they're thinking like 100 to 130,000 a day becoming infected. That's actually like a really big spread. Right. Uh, you know, if you think over the course of just three or four days, that's an extra hundred thousand people just in the in the error range there. And information like that can really change what a model predicts because of 80 or 90 percent of the population has been recently infected. And, you know, some other amount maybe not infected, but did get immunity from uh, from the vaccines. Even if, uh, you know, COVID continues to spread, it'll fizzle out on its own very quickly. But there is like an inflection point where if not enough people have had it, there's just not enough prevailing immunity, right? And I'm not going so far as to say herd immunity, but just immunity that things will just sort of, you know, die off more or less on their own. We don't know where that is, right? Because we don't know how many people have been infected. So the less information you have about your ground truth, the less accurate you can be with your models. This whole idea of operations and the healthcare space is a great example of something that you're really tightly interwoven <laughs> with now, which is in this, your role as Associate Dean for Cross-Disciplinary Programs. Could you give our listeners a bit of a sense of what this is? What is our Cross-Disciplinary Programs Office and, and your role in it? The Cross-Disciplinary Programs Office is all about basically sticking engineering where people might not necessarily realize it belongs, <laughs> which sort of encapsulates my entire research. <laughs> Um, so yeah, when we say cross-disciplinary, we're basically just talking about reaching across disciplines, right? So in the CDPO, uh, we're responsible for running and creating all of the minors and certificates that we offer to our engineering students. So things like minors and certificates in uh, AI, in business, in um, bioengineering, in music. Uh, we have just such an incredible spread and variety of topics. And you can choose to concentrate a little bit in a topic and get a certificate or a lot and get a whole minor. And it's all about just, uh, to borrow a political phrase, sort of reaching across the aisle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so reaching across to, to our colleagues, not just uh, across university, but even within engineering from one department to another to say, you know, what we think our students uh, in this program would really be interested in having, you know, an opportunity to get a minor in like, let's say robotics, right? That could, you know, draw students from, from MEC and from ECE. 
you know, what can we do to, to create a unique learning opportunity for our students so that they can really put themselves in a really interesting, cutting edge career field uh, right off the bat as they graduate. And we do the same with the Faculty of Arts and Science. And, but just recognizing that you know, engineering has a lot to offer, a lot of different disciplines, and that our students have a lot to offer just beyond formulas and equations and, you know, chemicals and everything else that, that they learn about in engineering, you know, they have broader interests. We train our engineers to think in, in a systematic way and to think very broadly about the way the world is interconnected, of course, always through the lens of their own particular discipline, but how can we expand that out? One thing that we have launching this next academic uh, school year, so starting in September, is uh, is a certificate in public health, Ooh. right? So <laughs> timely. very timely. <laughs> But of course, public health is not just about pandemics, right? There's all sorts of things like, you know, environmental health and occupational uh, health and safety. But this is something that's the interest is born out of current events, right? So I think one of the the key opportunities in our office is looking like what's going on in the world. Is there an opportunity or an interest in our students to contribute in that area? And how can we build educational opportunities for them to really just hit the ground running in, you know, sort of very niche intersecting areas. Yeah, we're really excited, I think, about this public health one. I was reminded when I, I think when we approached the dean there that that he reminded us that sanitation engineering was sort of the founder, foundation of public health back in the day was the design of, of sanitary sanitation systems, which was largely bringing in civil engineering. And it works both ways, right? Because I think we're also supporting public health, students in public health, partnering and working with uh, our design teams as well. So I think it's going to be it's going to be a great partnership going forward. So a couple other things I want to divert away from our talk about operations research. And you're an active member and co-chair of our Engineering Positive Space Committee. Give us a little bit of a, a sense of, of what that, that committee is working on and, and its mandate. Yeah, so uh, Engineering Positive Space is a LGBTQ plus uh, advocacy group uh, within engineering. And it's all uh, kind of just a bit ad hoc and informal, you know, and it actually hasn't been around all that long. I mean, maybe just uh, 10 or 12 years, something like that. It's basically a place where members of the LGBTQ community in, in engineering and well, really anyone who right. wants to join us, we're not picky, can just come and uh, just talk about issues that uh, they see around campus. Is there anything that um, that the committee can do or have, have there been incidents of concern and how can the committee help uh, respond to those incidents and try to create a more welcoming and inviting atmosphere for our LGBTQ population. And that's not just students, but also faculty and staff. I mean, engineering, we've been working hard to make sure that we're, we're an inclusive and, and welcoming community. And of course, there's always lots of work to, to continue to do. And June is Pride Month. So uh, what do you want our listeners to know about sort of positive space that relates to engineering or the faculty? Well, we have um, a student group, Queer Sphere, mm-hmm. that is uh, basically our uh, like the focal point right. for actual activities. So you can check out their website on school, sign up for their listserv. Uh, we also have uh, at the university level, um, Positive Space, and also the Sexual Gender and Diversity Office, uh, both of which arrange events or at least distribute a lot of information about events going on related to Pride. And in engineering Positive Space, we often, you know, redistribute those events. Uh, Blue and Gold, uh, the student group, they often do a big float for the Pride Parade. Um, So obviously that's been on a little bit of a pause during uh, (laughs) these COVID times. Um, I think it's back. I think think it is back also. Um, So I'm really excited uh, for that because it's always, uh, it's fun to march in the parade. It's fun to see the floats and all the students. Um, It's a, it's a good old time. 
So, so there's always these, these sort of off the wall questions that I like to ask. I forget what started this. So we started talking about cars for some reason, right? Oh, I think it was because someone had tried to steal my car. Oh, my wife's car. Oh, that's right. <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, we started talking about that. I mentioned it to you. Yeah, and we started talking about whose cars were easier to steal and the types of cars we used to steal. And we <laughs> off we went on a tangent. Part, so so tell our listeners, because this is part, again, a part of knowing our our faculty and, and the members of our community, but you are a bit of a, of a car fiend, I guess. Yeah, probably unfortunately accurate. <laughs> <laughs> So can you give our listeners a little bit of a sense yeah. of what, what have you what have you done to your vehicles, as it were? I have a hot rod, um, and I won't say exactly what, because should I ever manage to find an insurance company that will insure her, I don't want to be recognized driving around town because I've never seen another like her in Toronto. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, it's an American muscle car. And wow, there was a time in my life where every dollar that I earned went right into my car. Okay. <laughs> and I love her more than anything. <laughs> But I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I love my family more now. Okay, all right. Well, we get, well <laughs> that, yeah. that car was like the number one reason for live, like my existence. Uh, you know, I've got a tool chest that's taller than I am. I've done pretty much all the mods that you know you can do, and I was actually right about to do uh, stage two heads and cams. So that's like you know that's what really gives your car the blum, 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 right, blum right, sound right, right. and just take off the line uh, at the track. But then, uh, then it turned out um, I was graduating with my PhD and getting a job. <laughs> so I thought, like, okay, maybe I better put this on hold until things are a little bit more stable, with tenure and all that stuff. Because once I start doing this, what if it takes me a long time? Especially because I don't, uh, I don't have like like a good mechanic that I know here in Toronto in case things go south <laughs> and, I, and I need to bring in uh, some uh, some bigger brain power, bigger uh, bigger tools to, to help me out. I was like, let me just put everything on pause, time out. But then it turned out after we moved here, I couldn't find an insurance company that would like touch my car with a 10 foot pole. So, uh, <laughs> so she just sits in a garage being a garage queen. Every now and then I go and I look at her, <laughs> sit inside. <laughs> You, Maybe start her I was off. Gonna, I was going to say, if you turned it over, just it's make like sure Ferris it's still It's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> you know, like Cameron and his dad's Ferrari, just go and just look at it. So here's a question for you, though. I mean, you've got, obviously, an internal combustion car, and then you've got EVs coming out. Electrical Engineering is a partnership now with Porsche around uh, EV mm-hmm. technology and training their staff on the new technologies coming down for, for electric vehicles. Um, but they're also making a move, right? So that they, they're only, I think their only gas-powered vehicle will be, I think, a 911. All the rest of their, their fleet is moving towards EVs. So what are your thoughts on, on that regard? I think it's amazing. Oh, I think it's amazing. <laughs> the power that can be had with electric vehicles, like it's awesome. I and mean, don't get me wrong. There is nothing like, like just the feel of like that cam rolling around the engine, like so hard that it just like shakes your car a little bit. Like when you're idling right, right, right. and it's just like, boom, 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 boom. like you just feel it. Like, I love that. And but I don't think EVs are ever going to replace that. But at the same time, I mean, look at the power output of the EVs. Like you, you can't you know, ignore like the numbers that are, that are coming out. John, I want to thank you. This has been a, an, an amazing journey. Thank you so much for giving us a, a, an insight and in, in some of your time today to talk about this. Chris, it's been great. It's a lot of fun. Thanks again for listening to Coffee with Chris Yip. If you want to catch up on past episodes or make sure that you don't miss the next one, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Just look for Coffee with Chris Yip. 
You can also check out at U of T Engineering on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn for more stories about how our community is building a better world. And finally, if you've been inspired to join us, we'd love to welcome you. Whether you're thinking of taking a degree or working with us on our research project, you can find us online at engineering.utoronto.ca. Or you can visit our beautiful campus in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I hope I can join you for coffee soon.